to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 to 17. I baptize with water those who turn from their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is far greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to be his slave. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the grain with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, storing the grain in his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the River Jordan to be baptised by John. But John didn't want to be baptised by him. I'm the one who needs to be baptised by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it must be done because we must do everything that is right. So then John baptised him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water... The heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son and I am fully pleased with him. Some, I was talking to my mate the other night and I said to him, you know, Somebody said Jeremy thinks he's always right. And we both laughed and laughed. I said, have you ever heard a public speaker stand up as often as I do and say, I might be wrong? He, he said, no, I've, I've heard you stand up and say, I was wrong. I said, there you go. But what, so what's the point in that? Well, it's this. You will know that, uh, that there's a, a scripture in the Bible that I often quote. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And today, I'm going to be talking about the direct words of the Bible. And of course, that came first and foremost. I stood up and read straight from God's word. But I'm also going to be sharing things from my own experience and my own views. And all I ever ask you to do is to consider that. You'll often hear me use the word consider. Will you consider this thought? And it's up to you. I will answer to God for what I say, but you'll answer to God for what you do with it. Let's have a look. I've been reading a lot. I've been reading a lot of this chapter. Murray asked me several weeks ago what I preach on it, and I'm thinking, where do I go? So I read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. Lots and lots of times, not only from the book of Matthew, but also from the other Gospels as well. And I, as I read it, I tried to form a picture in my mind. You know I love to put pictures up for you. And here we have a very ancient picture on the left. Uh, that's from a mosaic and, a, and an ancient church roof of Jesus being baptised. And on the right, we have quite a modern sort of a picture, don't we, of Jesus' baptism. But I want to tell you that both of those things don't show something that was very, very important in this baptism business, John's baptism. Can anyone tell me what's missing from most pictures, not just these two, from most pictures? 
Well, I'll tell you, it's something that the Bible calls multitudes. I want you to know that when this went on, when John was baptizing, there were lots and lots and lots of people. They said that all Jerusalem, all Judea, the area around the Jordan. Imagine if I said to you, all Hamilton and all of the Waikato district went to Tiako. You're starting to get the picture. Middle of the Wops. And everybody's come there. Imagine what it'll be like. There'd be babies, there'd be horses probably, and donkeys and carriages. Poor people would walk, richer people would come. Would rich people come? Yes, because the Bible says everybody came. Luke says that John challenged everyone. I want you to picture this amazing sight, which I can't even find a picture for you, and I wasn't going to draw one myself. So John challenges everyone. You will read in the book of Matthew that he challenged the scribes and the Pharisees. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to come from the wrath to come? Go and bear fruit that befits repentance. You'll remember that. But if we look in the book of Luke, the book of Luke, it actually says that he challenged everyone. He said to everyone, if you've got more food than you need and more clothes, share it. Don't just come and get baptized and make no changes. And the tax collectors, tax collectors, said to him, What should we do? You know what they were, weren't you? Don't you? They were cheats. That was scumbags. What should we do? As if they didn't know. And he said, don't cheat anyone. Just collect the right amount of tax. And the soldiers said, what do we have to do? Now, I've always had this picture in my mind of Roman soldiers. What on earth are Roman soldiers doing there? But the Bible actually doesn't say they were Roman soldiers. But maybe they were. I don't know. Anyway, these soldiers say, what about us? Don't bully anyone. And be content with your Hey, ooh, that's not a very New Zealand thing to do, is it? Be content with your wages. And then they, they, uh, they confessed their sins. Was this a private sort of thing? No, it wasn't a private sort of a thing. There were hundreds of people there. And the poor people got up and confessed their sins. I stole a loaf of bread. I told a lie. And then the rich people got up and confessed their sins. Imagine it. I told my workers I couldn't afford to pay them any more. But actually, I could. I cheated people on their wages. I'm very rich, but I looked at my next-door neighbor, and I wished I had his house and his horse and his wife. I wonder what sorts of sins those rich people confessed. And then after that, they took their clothes off, and uh, poor people were quite used to this because in, in the old days, poor people would work naked in the fields. But for rich people, they weren't used to it. Some people think they kept their undies on. I don't know. But uh, what about soldiers? They took off their swords and shields and their helmets and those armor things, you know, and their boots and everything else. And without their clothes, they felt quite naked. All right, so for soldiers, it was a big come down, wasn't it? A big social le leveler. And then they walked down into the water and they submit to this wild, wild man. John was wild. He made me look like Murray Henderson. His disciples were there too. I don't think they had a hairbrush between them. And if John smiled, I don't know if he did, Hello. you would have seen bits of locusts stuck in his teeth because that's what he ate. He didn't have a toothbrush either, all right? So this wild guy, imagine that you're one of the richest people in town and you've arrived in beautiful gold clothes on a carriage and here you are naked in the water with this wild dude. You've just confessed your sins to all the people, including the people who work for you. Shame, Al. All right? Picture it. But it's a very unifying and shared experience. And once everybody's been through it, there's a sort of togetherness, isn't there? And afterwards, people go, oh, actually, the tax collector's just like me. And the soldier says, oh, I'm no better than anyone else. 
Now, the Bible says that this whole business was preparing the way. And I want to tell you, I really believe it did prepare the way. You see, up until now, everybody's been saying, one day the Messiah will come. One day Messiah will come and he'll save us from all this. One day the Messiah will come. But after this, people are saying, maybe it's today. Maybe it's tomorrow. Look, keep your eyes open. Are we going to meet Messiah in our lifetime? And that's why I believe that this, this episode set the tone for the book of Matthew. Because I, I've sometimes thought, you know, Jesus just arrives and people are so receptive. But it was only studying for this that I think, of course they were. This really did prepare their hearts. They're expecting something to happen very soon. Did everybody see the Spirit descend on Jesus? Did everybody hear the voice from heaven? The Bible does not say. It says Jesus saw and heard it. It says John saw and heard it. But I, it does not say clearly whether everyone saw and heard it and, was, and could actually see Jesus chosen as the Messiah or marked as the Messiah at that point. Now in verse 11 and 12, it says that Jesus comes with his winnowing fork in his hand. Do you remember that? He clears the threshing floor. Murray talked a little bit about this last week. He compared it with a combine harvester, which comes along, munches up all the stuff. All sorts of stuff goes on inside the combine. Stuff shoots out here and there, and it's just a lot of noise and air, but we don't know quite what goes on in there. I hate saying I don't know what goes on. I like to understand how things work but I didn't have time to pull a combine harvester apart this week. But let's have a look at what winnowing actually is, all right? First of all, you get the grain, and you, you cut it, and you dry it. And that's the, that's the wheat, you see. And then you go to a big area of concrete or stone. That's the threshing floor, and it's mentioned in the scripture. And then you whack, 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 whack it with sticks. Or In England, they used to use sort of big nunchuck things to whack this wheat Whack, 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 to separate everything off. Because you want the wheat grains to come out, but you don't want the husks, and you don't want the straw and all that sort of stuff. So now you've got this whacked stuff all over, and sometimes in the Middle East they would run it down over a sort of a wooden washboard thing, and it's all there. How are you going to separate the good bits from the bad? The answer is winnowing. You can see there that on the left, two men have got winnowing forks, quite literally, and they're using the forks to throw everything in the air. They've picked a good windy day, and the wind will blow away all the chaff and all the straw and all the bits and pieces, and the grain falls back down onto the floor. Very labor-intensive, isn't it? On the right-hand side, you can see something called a winnowing fan. And in the book King James, it says that his fan is in his hand. That's a winnowing fan, and she's using it to sort of tip the grain like this. And once again, the, the grain falls down, the wind blows away, the wind blows away the husks. So it's a sorting, it's a separating. And there are many, many pictures in the Bible that say God sorts things out. What's this one? Noah's Ark. You're in the boat or you're gone, burgers. All right? It's a sorting out. The Passover. Remember that? The angel of death goes through Egypt. Every firstborn dies unless... He sees the blood on the door, that picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us. There's a sorting. Some people are spared and some people are not. This one here was a very dramatic example. The Israelites walked right through the sea, staying dry, and then Pharaoh's army tried to do the same thing. There's a sorting. There's the chosen ones and there's the not chosen ones. This one, what's that? This is from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus talks about some people's lives are like a house built on the rock. And when hard times come and storms, their life holds up. 
But other people build their life on the sand or build their life like a house on the sand. And when hard times come, it falls down. Can you see the house falling down? It looks a nice house, doesn't it? But it was built on the wrong stuff. And Jesus said, and this is the third time I've asked that in this building, Jesus said, the people whose life stand are the people who do what? Anybody? Anyone? Hear my words and do them. That's what Jesus said. And the people who hear my words and don't do them, their life will fall to bits in the hard times. And what about the people who didn't hear Jesus' words? That's irrelevant because you just heard them. So, <laughs> Matthew 13, the sower went out to sow. Remember, and some seeds went here, some there. But only one of the four sets of seeds really did achieve its potential. And he says, your life is like that too. Your life is like that. Will you achieve your potential? It depends, doesn't it, on whether you build on Jesus. Uh, this, this was another one, the wheat and the tares. Have a look at that. Can you tell which one's wheat and which one's tares? I can't. They look identical. And wheat and tares grow together. And Jesus says that there was, that there was somebody who had wheat and tares growing in the field. And it wasn't until they got right to the end, the harvest time, that you could tell the difference. Because in the end, you can. But until then, wheat and tares look absolutely identical. And he's talking, of course, about people. And that's, of course, closely related, isn't it, to the granary thing, gathering the wheat in and throwing the chaff away. These are the wise and foolish maidens. Remember some of the maidens? They got oil in their lamp. They were ready for when the bridegroom came and the others weren't. So only the ones who were ready were allowed into the feast. And the other, oh, they missed out. A time of great sadness. And then, of course, Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats, doesn't he? I'm only picking a few of the examples just from the book of Matthew. It's a major biblical theme. Jesus said, at the end of time, I'm going to put all the people there like sheep and goats, and I'll separate them out. Right, welcome, you can come into my kingdom. And you are a goat, and you can't. What's the sorting out criteria? What does the Bible say? It does say, what does it say? How does he choose who goes into the kingdom and who doesn't? Do you remember? It's how we treat the poor and needy, that's what. When you saw me hungry, did you feed me? When you saw me sick, did you visit me, says Jesus. You? We didn't even see you. Yes, you did. Because when you saw poor people, that was me. And that's how he sorts the sheep from the goats. So what a huge, huge theme it is in the Bible, sorting out. Please note, the sorting and the judging is not done now in Jesus' stories. It's at the end of the story, at the end of the age, the end of the world, or perhaps what Val would just call the end. And please also note, we don't do the sorting. The Lord does. Look at this shocking, shocking scripture. Do not think, says Jesus, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. What a shocking, shocking scripture. How does this line up with the Prince of Peace? How does that line up with the reconciliation that the Bible tells us is so important? In case you don't know, reconciliation means that people who are once enemies have now become friends. You could be reconciled with your naughty boy who was horrible to you. You could be reconciled with your mother-in-law. You could be reconciled with God. 
And as Christians, we are in the business of reconciliation between people and God, between people and people. That's what we do. That's our job. More later. No, more now. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. Aren't Christians meant to be examples of getting along? I mean, in Ireland, the, the Catholics and the Protestants have fought each other for generations. But in Christ, they can get along, can't they? They can be friends. And uh, in, in Israel, and the, the Israelis and the Palestinians, they fought each other terribly. But in Christ, they can be friends. They can be brothers and sisters. Do you remember Corrie ten Boom, who watched her sister beaten to death by German guards in the concentration camp? And later on, when she was touring Europe, talking about reconciliation, a man came up to her and said, I'm so glad to hear your, your, your talk of forgiveness because I was one of those guards. And straight away something rises up in Corrie that says, can I forgive this man who represents my sister being bashed to death in front of my eyes? And she did. Because that's what Christians do, isn't it? Powerful stuff. The man in Auckland who was uh, in, in prison and he got a visitor. And the visitor was the father of the man who he'd killed by driving drunk. And the man came and, and he knew that this was the man he'd killed his son. And he said, my wife and I have talked about it and we have decided to forgive you. Powerful stuff. Life-changing for the young man in prison. A couple of weeks ago, we had to pick up a book from Mary's place. And so we just arrived and, uh, and Mary and her husband said, come on in, come on in. And we went in and we had some nice food and, and we talked and told our stories. It was a great time. But you see, as Christians, we reach out across cultures in many cases, don't we? There's a lot of, time, there's a lot of fear about, now I'm, I haven't asked Mary about this, but I'm going to imagine that Mary and her husband will go, oh goodness, here's some people come, they're not Chinese, I hope we don't muck up here. And Jer Jeremy and Janet are going, oh, I wonder if there's any rules you have to do in a Chinese house. I hope we don't muck up here. But we, we suck it up, we get on, don't we? And we do it. Years ago, I used to be scared of Samoans because they seemed so fierce and because it was so easy to do something wrong, like talk when you're standing up instead of when you're sitting down or something like that. Okay, I get that. But after I started to mix with Samoans in the body of Christ, they go, I was wrong. They're just so glad I'm there at all. They're not looking out and trying to catch me out. Because in Christ, we've got all sorts of cultures. Look, look here, in this room, there's Afrikaans, there's, there's Brits, there's, um, there's New Zealand Māori and New Zealand non-Māori. We've got Fijians in the room right now. We've got all sorts of people. And we come here, and in Christ, we're all one. Okay? In Galatians 3.28, it says this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, a Gentile is a non-Jew, neither slave nor free, nor is the male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Of course, Paul doesn't mean those things, that, that there's no males and females. That's some other twit says that. But what he means is, compared to our oneness in Christ, those things don't even matter. Are you with me so far? All right, here's the great enigma. We've got the Prince of Peace who's all about inclusion and welcoming us all in and making us one when we were once all full of raru raru, all right? In our church, we don't care if you're Jewish or not. Some of us are. We don't care if you're rich or poor. We all are, rich or poor. <laughs> we don't care if you're male or female, old or young, New Zealand-born, immigrant. We don't care because God has broken down those barriers in Christ. All right so far? Then fasten your seatbelts. Because now, I'll tell you something, the division line is different. You see, Jesus says, I've come to actually 
winnow people out. Some people go this way, some go that. And we're going, hang on, Jesus is about inclusion, but he's, he's about sorting out as well. And you're accepted and you're rejected. Well, what's the difference? This is the difference. The lines have changed. Maybe 40 years ago, men and women found it a bit awkward to get on with each other. You know, maybe they didn't see eye to eye. But when the feminists came along, about 40 years ago, they had a, a meeting in Auckland, very radical feminists, and they said, we are going to smash the patriarchal family in New Zealand. This is how we're going to do it. Mum, dad, and the kids. And so they, they, the, the women who were at that meeting became quite influential. Many of them would be names you know. And over the next years, they began to enact the laws. They went into parliament and into the law, and uh, they began to enact laws that they believed would break down the patriarchal family. In other words, mum, dad, and the kids. And uh, how is it going so far? Tragically, successfully, all right? If you look around you, you see. And, and, and I, ca I can't remember all of them, but one of them is, you, you know, you're going to pay women to leave their husbands. Uh, we're going to, to liberalise the laws around prostitution and so on. And it's been done, and it's, it's been out there. This is what we're doing. And you will see that the new division isn't between men and women. It's between people who want to uphold the family and those who want to fight the family. You'll notice, some of you, that Family First, which is an organisation that, that uh, sticks up for families, has been taken to court three times by the government. The government has probably spent a million dollars on legal fees fighting them because they stand up for what the government calls the traditional family, but what Family First calls the natural family, mum, dad and the kids. That's so unfashionable that the government has spent millions on trying to shut them down. There are so many divisions, aren't there, in our, in our society. I told you that uh, you know, when I was a young man, feminists were quite divisive, but now the feminists wanted to hold a conference in a university down south, and it was shut down, because nowadays you don't argue about things, you cancel it. It was shut down by the trans action people, the trans, um, transgender people, because they said, we don't think the feminists should be allowed to exist, because they say you can only be a woman if you are one. See, yeah, that's right, you see. And now, of course, that's very unfashionable. This week was, was International Women's Day, but no one's allowed to say what a woman is anymore, so it was a bit of a flop. It is, it is isn't it? And, you, and you, have you heard the word phobia? Like It used to be agoraphobia, used to be claustrophobia, didn't it? Like an irrational fear. Ugh. But now, the word phobia is used to shut someone down. So if I say, you know... Did you know that research shows that kids do best when they're with their mum and dad? Instead of talking about the issue, people will go, oh, homophobia, homophobia, and they'll shut me down. I say, Wait, no, can I tell you about the research? No, oh, homophobia. See? Or as, have I told you this? Muhammad's youngest wife, Aisha, was six when he married her. And in Pakistan now, young girls are often kidnapped on their way home from school to be taken away as wives for Muslims. Is there a connection there? Should we think about that? Ooh, Islamophobia. See, we're not allowed to think about it. No, 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 no. We just yell and, and use the word phobia. And so long as we can say phobia, we don't need to think. Some people want our society to be divided, and they're opposed to the people who want our society to be together. Some people are anti-transformation. They're anti-redemption. And in America now, the song Amazing Grace is being banned. Do you know why? Because the man who wrote it, John Newton, was in the slave trade. Well, of course he was. He said he was a wretch. He said he was lost. He said he was blind before God saved him. Duh, that's the whole point of the song. But there's no redemption. There's no 
there's no change. There's, there's no reconciliation in a lot of these new cultures. Morinamata. Now, my, here's my experience. I'm going to tell you a bit about my experience in my lifetime. Since 1986, there's been a big push in New Zealand from some people, not many, but from some, to divide Māori people from non-Māori. Have you noticed that? I, took, I gave a ride to an, an old Māori grandfather here, a man about 20 years older than me, and he said, when I was young, Māori and Pākehā were like that. And he crossed his fingers like that. They were like that. And he told me about his life, growing up with Pākehās, and how they were all mates and nobody minded. Dudes. But he might have been surprised that me, that he was talking the 1940s, but me, a young man who grew up in the 1960s, it was just the same then. It was, wasn't it? I mean, Lynette often talks about it. Back in those days, we didn't care to hurt. And so it really is only in 1986 that moves began, and I know quite a bit about it, I'm not going to tell you, but I should also tell you that most Māori and Pākehā are still like that. You won't read about it, you won't hear about it, but it's still like that. When Māori people take a partner or marry, half of them marry a non-Māori. That's statistics today. So that's not racist, is it? And uh, Eva Rickard, you remember her? Famous Māori activist and Princess Tapuya. Eva Rickard said the way forward for New Zealanders, New Zealand, uh, that, that Māori and Pākehā must marry each other and learn to understand each other. And Princess Tapuya says, marry a Pākehā, they're better husbands, and she married a Canadian. <laughs> you see? So, so this is, the racism, <laughs> it gets lots and lots of air, air time, but it's actually not really there that much. Uh, on the Māori roll, less than half of the Māori people in New Zealand are registered on the Māori roll for electorate purposes, and that is slowly going downwards. And the Māori Party, which is the party in Parliament that really does push strongly for separation, doesn't it? We want to be our own people. We don't want that very anti-Pākehā. Um, and uh, they get 1.4% in the polls. So most New Zealanders don't agree with them. In fact, 9 out of 10 Māori don't. You can see that if you look at the numbers. Because in New Zealand, our oneness is precious to us, isn't it? Who is this? He is shaking hands with Honeheke. It's Hobson, it's Governor Hobson. And as each person signs the Treaty of Waitangi, and of course Honeheke was the first, he shakes the hand and he says, He iwi tahi tato. It's not very good grammar, I know that, Māori speakers, but that was his way, the meaning was, was plain. We are one people. And so Honeheke and Governor Hobson were one people. And Honeheke was greatly honoured during his lifetime for all the things he did to bring the Māori people and, and the English settlers together. Honeheke is not remembered for it, but he was a great bridge builder. We are only told the things that, we, that people want us to hear. In the 1980s, there were great protests in New Zealand against apartheid and a South African system where different Ethnic groups had totally different lives and spaces and parliaments and health systems and everything else. I'm not judging apartheid today. That's not the point of my speech. Some people think it was very good. But in New Zealand, people did not like it. There were huge marches and protests. And when apartheid changed and when people began to be allowed to mix in South Africa, the South Africans, especially Nelson Mandela, said New Zealand's support was very important, very much treasured. But now there's increasing pressure in our country to separate us out. Separate health system, separate justice system, separate education system, separate gov governance and government. And when we use the word apartheid for that, 
the people in charge of it hate it. They don't like us to use the word. Is it any different? I don't know. I was talking to a South African man three weeks ago at length, and he told me that apartheid was a very good thing, and he described it in detail, and it sounds exactly what they're trying to set up in New Zealand. Some people in our society try to build resentment and distrust, and it's working. My mate goes up to Northland hunting often, and when he goes up there, he used to drive up the country districts and the roads, and he'd get a smile and a wave, but now he gets it. He assumes it's because he's a Pākehā. Nobody cares what he thinks. He's married to a Māori, his kids are Māori, his grandchildren are Māori, he loves them all. He's not a racist, but it's just that, that somebody has managed to sow that division, and he, he notices it when he drives up there. I also, on the other side, I've read recently quite a lot of people, they're not Māori, but they said things like, I used to go to Māori classes to learn the language, and I loved it. It's a beautiful language, but now I won't because I think it symbolises the division which I hate in our society. I've heard non-Māori people, or read, people who say, I used to love the haka, it stirred something within me and gave me a sense of nationhood, but now I don't like it, because it represents division. That's serious, isn't it? Now, I've heard a local haka, written by a local man, that was just so full of hate and division, and I, that I went round to see him about it, because he was doing it, this haka in a school, with a school party. And I went round to visit him, but I couldn't find him, but I visited his mother, and she was a Christian lady, very, very sad. I told him, I told him that haka will hurt a lot of people. So there's, uh, the haka, of course, is not an art form that's full of hate. I've seen some great hakas done on script, with scripture, on the words. In my experience, I've been in places where there's some resentment against me for being Pākehā. But here's the thing. The resentment has come from one or two people in the room, and the other people sit there quietly, uncomfortable, and then after the hui, they come to me and say, thank you for coming, Jeremy, we're so glad you were there, we really appreciate what you have to say. Because they're too scared to say to the others, no, Jeremy's allowed to be here, everyone's allowed to be here. They're too scared to say it in the meeting, but they say it to me. The worst experience I had was a Christian gathering in Auckland, which I was invited to, and it said, we are going to have a gathering when we listen to Maori and Polynesian people tell their stories about living in New Zealand today. I thought, yeah, that's a bit of me. So I responded to the invitation, thank you, I'll be there. Got in my car and I drove. I got as far as uh, Wuri, you know, Manukau City. Phone goes, uh, Jeremy, were you coming to that hui today? Said, well, you know I was. I put my, you know, I returned my thing. Oh, uh, did you know it's only for Maori and Polynesian people? No. This is a Christian organisation. I tell you, I was shocked. I, I would, it just was like a knot in my stomach. Because I'm going, what? A Christian's buying into this crap now. I was just shocked. I'm, I mean, I'm shocked just talking about it. In Christ, that shouldn't be possible. And I've never really got over it. When we try and bring healing and reconciliation, we get pushback from two directions. And here they are. First, the people who don't want to listen or change. Please... Uh, listen to this scripture. This is from Acts 19, and it describes when Paul stood up and began to speak about Jesus and Ephesus. Do you remember what happened? Quite a lot. People got aggro, and they dragged Paul off, and they said, you can see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger. Not only our trade will lose its good name, by the way, their trade was making little gods. 
but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. No one could listen to Paul, why not? Because they're all busy yelling for two hours, the Bible says. That's cancel culture, Bible style. And what's that got to do with us? Well, there are small numbers of people who want to block Maori people from the Christian gospel. And uh, at Matateni this year, there was a powerful, quite stirring presentation. Uh, you know what Tamatateni is, the National Kapahaka Festival, where a, a group got up and, they, and their, their presentation was, Maori people turn away from Christ and go back to the gods you served before. We have a friend of our church who works in an Atainui role, and uh, she finds it very, very hard, very oppressive. She said, it's very hard to be a Christian. Mm, yes, and, and, and Lana's giving me a look, goes, hang on, aren't I know he meant to be Christians? Yes, Lana, yes. But she says that to actually have a faith in Jesus and work in the Tainui thing can be tough. People can be down on her. Other people don't, leaving aside sort of spiritual things, other people don't want to be challenged on their views on families or evolution or science or sexuality or climate, etc. So they make a big fuss and they cancel things. Ah! Can we talk about global warming? No, no, you're a denial. <laughs> Don't name calling. And then, and here's the other pushback. This is from Acts chapter 11, and this is talking about when Paul, wait, sorry, when when Peter goes back to his Jewish mates, and they've heard that he's working with non-Jews. <gasps> the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, non-Jews, had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, there are small numbers of Christians who feel that if we reach out and engage with local culture, with the needs, with the language, the music, the places, the ways of doing things, the church will lose its purity. Attenders have left this church because of me. Now, you know me pretty well. You know the things I say. And people, one man who came for years and years regularly said, Jeremy is too soft on sin. I'm leaving. And he's never come back since. And he's not the only one to leave because of me. Because I believe that Jesus loves sinners. <laughs> he didn't want to think that. So here's the big question. Can we do anything about it? Yes, we can. Proverbs 19 says, when a person's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he causes even his enemies to make peace with him. Now, I'm an immigrant to New Zealand. I am not a New Zealander. And I've been moving in Tainui circles since 1986, which is the exact year the big split effort began. It's been a privilege. I've served Tainui institutions. I've built friendships. I've taught in schools. I've been involved in governance. I was there when the Raupatu was, was settled. But most of the time has been just unspectacular, just plodding away. But I could tell you, and I'm not today, of exact moments when I saw a wall break down in front of my eyes. That resistance crumble, that reconciliation as people within the Tainui structure, the small number that are kind of anti-Pakia, as they just dropped their guard and a bond was made between me and them. It's been a wonderful privilege. God is bigger than our division. The ugliest racism I've ever seen in my whole life was in the 1990s listening to Huntley West young Maori people talk about Asians. The hatred there was awful. But in Huntley West price cutters, Selesh and his family have been running that shop for years. They're Fijian Indian. 
They're respectful and kind. They treat their customers well. And gradually, the community has learned to love Selesh and his family. They've earned it. And I never, never hear those awful things about Asians now like I used to do 30 years ago. And I've gone in especially to say, Selesh, thank you for what you have done to bring reconciliation in this community. You have served and cared and loved and been generous. And you know what? He's a Hindu. How about that? So what about the church purity group? Well, they're sincere. They mean well. And if you listen, we can learn things from them. So I hope that we can maintain friendships. And maybe one day they'll listen to us, or maybe they'll even listen to a challenge, or maybe God will speak. Keeping a relationship alive means there might be a chance to see change and a softening of attitude. Have I ever managed to get the church purity group alongside the Tainui separatists? No, but I'm not dead yet. God bless you all. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.